Hello and welcome to another episode of the Warm Blanket Podcast, where we embark on a journey to see what makes us feel good about Star Trek, where is our love comes from, and what it means for us. In short, what is our warm blanket? My name is Gary, and I'm your host, and I'm very honored to welcome my very special guest today, who almost need no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. I am very lucky to welcome the actor, director, singer, and professional science geek who played in multiple, multiple productions like Inner Space, Gremlins, Golden Girls, Matinee and Stargate, just to mention a few. <laughs> Not uh, for many, he is probably most well known as the holographic doctor from the little show called Star Trek Voyager. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a very welcome and a very special welcome to the one and only Mr. Robert Picardo. How are you, sir? Very well, Gary. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and it's nice to know that you're in Scotland, which is a country that I have spent uh, quite a bit of uh, time in in the last. Uh, three years and enjoyed myself tremendously. Now uh, that, that, that's good to know and I hope one day you will be once the whole um, situation sorted out you will be able to come back and and you know enjoy <laughs> um, more of Scotland. So um, before we go any further I would like to talk about the elephant in the room um, the 1985 crystal sugar commercial. <laughs> <laughs> How much did you have to practice uh, your Italian in that one? Uh, well, I am, uh, I, although I do not speak very much Italian, um, I am of a hundred percent Italian ancestry. All four of my grandparents, uh, emigrated from Italy in the, around the, uh, end of the first decade, um, uh, and middle of the second decade of the 20th century. Uh, I have many, many relatives in Italy, and I've always had a good ear for the Italian accent because my father, when he was alive, was a businessman, and uh, he had a furniture business in a very Italian-American neighborhood, and uh, and many of the people who shopped there were also immigrants. So I grew up hearing uh, an, an Italian-inflected English, and I do a pretty good Italian accent. Now, why I was cast in that commercial years ago playing a, a want-to-be Italian gigolo <laughs> uh, wearing a toupee and, and lying about the house. Uh, Crystal Sugar, I believe, is only available in certain states, so I never saw the commercial on the East Coast when I lived there. Um, they, they played in three or four uh, states, uh, somewhere in the Midwest or Pacific Northwest, I don't remember exactly. And I did four commercials for them. They were incredible uh, fun to do them. I shot them all in one day, and somehow one of the four ended up on the internet and I really wish the other the other three would as well because they were all pretty funny. Now, they, they were awesome and I, when recently I haven't seen them I was like oh my days like how did I actually never seen them and it's it's fantastic um, so um, that now, comes I should to... say before we leave that subject um, there's a character that I do uh, joke videos uh, an Italian a gigolo, sort of an aging Italian gigolo <laughs> character named Alfonso, where I do basically the same accent that I still do to this day. You can find little bits of Alfonso on my Instagram feed, and you will be seeing more of him lately. Um, <laughs> I- I'm sorry, in the near future, you'll see more and more of him because during this lockdown, I've had someone ship to me my Alfonso wig and smoking jacket and the rest of his wardrobe, and I will be doing little Alfonso updates on Instagram, so I invite your audience to check out uh, um, at Robert underscore Picardo and see some more of me as, uh, this time, 
a much older gigolo than the one in the Crystal Sugar commercial of 1985. <laughs> that, that's really good to know. Um, so, talking about acting, have you always wanted to be an actor? No, no, I w wanted to be a doctor. I, I, my childhood ambition was to go into medicine. I thought perhaps pediatrics. I think it was because I liked my uh, childhood pediatrician so much and I was uh, inspired by him. So I mm -hmm. went off to college and was a biology major for nearly two years. But theater is something I had done in high school for fun. I continued to do mm -hmm. it at Yale as an undergraduate and eventually I had kind of a quasi-professional experience at Yale where we did uh, a production of the Leonard Bernstein Mass and Mr. Bernstein came to see it, was rather taken with my performance. He took much of our production, not all of it, but most of it, uh, with some cast replacements uh, to premiere his work, a, a college production to premiere his work in Vienna, and that's what got me interested in being a performer. So Leonard Bernstein was influential, actually told my mother that he thought I should go into, uh, that I should be a performer. And uh, that's what helped get me out of pre-med. Um, mm -hmm. And I've never regretted um, uh, being an actor. It's ironic, of course, that I played so many doctors. Since that was <laughs> yes. my actual ambition. Uh, and perhaps it even helped a little bit to understand scientific reasoning uh, to handle all those long technobabble speeches in Voyager because Voyager's based in real science and uh, just uh, so it, I think it actually helped me to have a bit of a science background. I certainly caught them when they made mistakes uh, in the dialogue. <laughs> I was just about to ask how much how much um, your medical study helped uh, with the character, but you just answered my question basically. <laughs> I did. I would call them on the phone and say this is not specifically correct. Um, uh, my line was something like uh, the first cells to be attacked by the Borg Borg nanoprobes uh, are the patient's blood cells, and I said mm -hmm. blood is is a tissue. So you should really say the first tissue to be attacked by the Borg nanoprobes is the patient's blood. And they thought that was, um, yeah, and they thought that sounded strange, but then they called me back and said, you're right, so that's what we did. So little things like that. You know? mm -hmm. But in retrospective, uh, have you ever thought that, what would have been, what would have my life been if I'm a doctor? You know, uh, I, I have uh, many times. I have a, a number of friends who are doctors, uh, close friends, and, mm -hmm. and I admire them. Uh, but I, I think I made the right decision personally, but I think, it, I think it's a very admirable career. Mm. So you played in two of my favorite movies. Uh, one of them is Inner Space and the other one is Gremlins 2. Um, both of them, you, you were fantastic, and I, I, I love the character in Inner Space. Um, I think you played a very goofy, <laughs> a very goofy character there too. Um, where do you place these movies in your heart? Uh, Inner Space is uh, all. Both movies, of course, are part of my long professional relationship with Joe Dante, a director whom I adore. He's been a great friend and supporter of mine uh, since we did The Howling together. He saw me in my second Broadway show in my early 20s. I did two leads on Broadway, mm -hmm. uh, one in a play called Gemini, and the second uh, was a play called Tribute, uh, and I played the son of the great actor Jack Lemmon. I had the second lead yeah. in the show. Mm -hmm. I believe Joe Dante was a particular Jack Lemmon fan. Joe is an amazing cinephile. He knows everything about movies. He came to see it, 
saw me as the young 24-year-old lead in that and for some reason decided to audition me to play a werewolf uh, mm-hmm. in, his, uh, in his movie The Howling, which I did. And uh, even though that was quite a dramatic role, he got a sense of my sense of humor during, um, you know, outtakes and, and, and uh, bloopers. And, you know, I made a lot of jokes when we were, especially when I had the werewolf transformation makeup on. <laughs> so then he continued to offer me parts in other movies. Probably the best role is the cowboy in inner space. It was a very small part, undefined, didn't have a lot of lines. So much of it is improvised. Many of the lines I made up. Oh, really? And and uh, Spielberg produced the movie, and Joe wanted to use me, but Spielberg felt the character had to be scary, not just funny. And Joe didn't. Joe wanted to fool Spielberg into thinking I was going to be scary, so we did kind of a scary audition that turned funny, and I was approved by Spielberg. And in the audition, I actually improvised some singing as the character. And that's uh, and that was funny enough that it 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 I was told that I should sing uh, in a scene in the movie. So that's why I'm humming. I'm an old <laughs> cow hand because uh, mm-hmm. they they thought that my improvised Middle Eastern accent saying the lyric "Yibiyo Chaye" was funny <laughs> enough to be in the movie. So I um, much of that part was made up. Um, my mm-hmm. some of the cowboys' classic lines uh, are. Uh, our ad libs uh, that I did, um, including uh, when I say to Meg Ryan, "Women love me," but you know that. And uh, <laughs> when I say, uh, as as Martin Short's character impersonating the cowboy, the outlaw Josie Bales, all of that stuff is made up. Um, so. Uh, and and, uh, and Gremlins 2, by the way, has its 30th anniversary. This June 15th is the 30th anniversary of the release date of, of Gremlins 2. And they're having a big watch party on uh, Sci-Fi Wire online. Mm-hmm. And I did, uh, I did an interview, a sort of a secret interview that, uh, <laughs> will, that you will see on uh, uh, June 15th um, oh, for awesome. the, the anniversary of Gremlins 2. That, too, was a lot was a very fun character. Um, both movies I wear big hair pieces in, uh, and, it, and I'll let you let your audience in on a, on a surprise. The character that I just mentioned that I do online, Alfonso, the aging gigolo, is the very same wig that I wore really? in Gremlins <laughs> 2 30 years ago. So wow. the wig is, I just had it shipped out from New York to where I'm staying in California because Alfonso will ride again, and that means <laughs> The Gremlins 2 wig will ride again this week. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. That, that that's actually even makes it um, the character more, um, both in, in Gremlins and both uh, in Inner Space, the cowboy makes it more, I don't know, relevant. And not relevant, just makes it more original, knowing that it wasn't something that they they gave you, like, hey, this is the line, you have to mm-hmm. practice them. And, like, you came off with it. You, you created that character from from the ground up, basically. Well, he was undefined where he was from, what he was. He had very few lines, as I said. So I would say that of my scripted, uh, of the lines you hear in the movie, uh, and I, I'm, you know, I'm going to just pull this number out of the air, but I would say 50% of the lines I have in the movie were in the script, and the other 50% mm-hmm. are made up. So, 
So that's, oh, wow. that's a pretty good, that's a good number. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, playing with um, Jack Lemmon. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan, um, and Walter Matthew, they, they've been absolutely fantastic together. How was it um, playing with him? Well, that was a, it was an extraordinary experience, of course. It was the, it was the role that every young actor of my generation wanted to play on Broadway. Star Wars had just opened. Mark Hamill very much wanted to play the part that I played mm -hmm. in Tribute. Um, years, 10 or 12 years after I did the role in my, um, no, of course, what am I talking about? 16 years after I did the role, mm -hmm. I met Brent Spiner when I was just cast in Voyager and I walked over to the set of Generations and I, and, uh, uh, someone said, Bob, have you met Brent Spiner? And Brent Spiner turned to me and said, you got my part in tribute. <laughs> he was, he was joking. He was joking, of course, but he was, but he was also serious. Mm -hmm. uh, he was still smarting from the fact that he was a huge Jack Lemmon fan and wanted to play the son in tribute. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Brent got to work with Jack in um, uh, at Out to um, Sea. Out to Out sea. To sea. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was a great role. Um, if I could wish any experience on a young actor, it would be to spend the better part of a year working with Jack Lemmon on Broadway and mm -hmm. also in the Los Angeles production. He was extraordinarily gracious. Uh, when we op when we had the first previews in Boston, we previewed in Boston and then Toronto and then went to Broadway. I got the best review from the most prestigious Boston critic, Elliot Norton, mm -hmm. uh, reviewed the show, and he was the important Boston critic, and he gave me the best review of anyone in the show, and I thought, oh my God, maybe I'll be fired now, because I'm working with a big star. And okay. Jack came, I, I'll never forget it, he walked uh, into the backstage of the theater the, the uh, afternoon that the, that the review came out, and he said, hey, kiddo. Great review, well-deserved, well-deserved. And then we just went on. <laughs> then two weeks later, we opened in Toronto and I got the worst review in the show. And I realized because I played a very contentious son to Jack Lemmon's very lovable Peter Pan-like irresponsible <laughs> dad. Mm -hmm. um, he'd been an irresponsible father. I was the son of divorce. And I, you know, he'd not, he had, you know, been in and out of my young life many times, mm -hmm. but I was very hard on him. So. I realized then that the critics saw the play either from the point of view of the irresponsible father who mm -hmm. was trying to make it up to his son or the angry son who, you know, who uh, couldn't forgive his father for being a screw up. So depending on how you saw the play, whether you identified with the son or father, you know, you, you either hated my character mm -hmm. or you, you, you might have loved Jack Lemmon's, you know, Farm, but he was an irresponsible guy. So you saw the play depending on your own relationship, I think, mm -hmm. with your father or your own son, depending on what stage of life you're at. So either yeah. way, I realized I couldn't listen to any of the critics. Or if you listen to one critic, you got to listen to all of them. If you listen to yeah. the guy who loves you, you got to listen to the guy who hates you. So it was a good lesson to learn. So that was a great experience. And Mr. Lemon and I remained friends throughout the rest of his life. And one of my sweetest mem I, I I went to parties at his house. I met every major movie star of his generation through him, either at his house or backstage at the theater, at his dressing room. When I was invited always to come meet Kirk Douglas, Shirley MacLaine, 
Henry Fonda, you know, pretty, mm. pretty amazing. Um, just it was it was an amazing experience. I met, you know, I went to parties at his house, and Frank Sinatra was there. So Fred Astaire. It was just an extraordinary life experience for someone in their mid twenties, and mm. uh, and uh, and I and I. I, I realized then that you can have enormous success in the industry and still remain a very kind and humble person. So I like to think that 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 lesson made me appreciate all of the actors that I've worked with over the years who really are down to earth and you know, regardless of their success, are still you know regular people um, because Jack is was the perfect role model of that. Hmm. That's awesome. Like you, you even gave a closer look to Jack Lemmon for me, which, which is an awesome thing. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I, I loved his work, um, especially the one with um, with Walter Matthau. He was fantastic, and and uh, having the, carrying this legacy as well. That's 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 really really awesome. The last time I saw Jack, I was wearing my Star Trek Doctor's uniform. <laughs> Jack was on the lot at the stage right next to the same stage as the Voyager Bridge, right next wow. to it. He was on the set of of The Odd Couple Two, you know, the mm -hmm. the yeah. uh, the late late career sequel mm -hmm. when Jack was in his uh, mid late seventies and Walter was I think eighty. Yeah. And uh, and I said I went over and sat with Jack in his trailer for ten fifteen minutes during a shooting break. And I also uh, got to see Walter again, who remembered me as Jack used to call me the rotten kid because that was <laughs> the character that I played mm -hmm. in the show. So uh, I remember Jack saying, uh, hey, Walter, look who's here, Bobby Picardo. And he goes, Bobby Picardo, Bobby Picardo, where is he? <laughs> hey, how you doing? You know, because he had that way of talking that was very funny. Like yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, my. <laughs> well, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm just like I'm starstruck already. <laughs> well, you can um, look on the internet. You can find an image if you search Robert Picardo, Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau. You'll get a black mm -hmm. and white picture of the three of us, with uh, the four of us, with Jack's wife Felicia. So four okay, of us uh, in a picture. I, I, I will dig it up for some, for some, <laughs> somehow. Um, so you mentioned um, singing, and um, I know that you uh, made. Um, um, audio city that I actually own. <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. it's a very funny one. Basic Bob. What mm -hmm. was the inspiration inspiration behind the Basic Bob? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I love to sing. You know, it's what <laughs> we call a vanity CD. You uh, and I love to. I've always loved to write song parodies. In fact, I'll give a teaser for your audience. I will shortly be releasing on the internet another song parody. Look out for it. Probably in oh. a couple weeks. Um, uh, I won't say any more about it, but I've always loved to do parodies, uh, mm -hmm. and um, and I also I was raising uh, money uh, during the run of Voyager. I raised a significant amount of money for the Pediatric AIDS Foundation, um, which was a charity that I was very uh, sympathetic towards. Uh, for a while, it was called the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Paul mm -hmm. Michael Glazer's uh, now deceased wife uh, contracted the AIDS virus from a blood transfusion, mm -hmm. and uh, and also you know the charity was primarily for the young, obviously the youngest victims of the AIDS virus, uh, because uh, children that were that received it, you know, um, mm -hmm. either um, 
I, I suppose they could get it from blood transfusion, but it was much likelier that they had it transmitted to them, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, during uh, the embryonic uh, uh, stage before birth. So it was a it was a great uh, charity. It still exists, and for many years I raised money for them. Um, selling those CDs, I would uh, donate. I, I believe it was twenty percent of the mm -hmm. sale price of the thing and I it was a self-produced so I had invested the money to make the thing and I would donate that money to the Pediatric AIDS Foundation when I was on the Star Trek weakest link and I came in number <laughs> two uh, came in number two to um, uh, to LeVar Burton uh, I very nearly raised the hundred and twenty thousand uh, prize money uh, for my charity but LeVar got it for his charity but I think the consolation prize was about 10000 that went to the Pediatric AIDS wow. Foundation. So anyway, so that's why I did the CDs. I ended up doing three or four of them. I used to sell them at conventions. Now, um, you know, I see them on eBay for enormous amounts of money, and I still have them. I just got tired of taking them to conventions. But <laughs> someday, I guess they'll return because I see them on eBay for 60 80 100 sometimes $150. So uh, rather than let people scalp it, I should I should bring them back. But uh, that was my favorite one, and also I did mm -hmm. a reading of the book that I wrote, uh, the Holograms Handbook, oh. which was the in indispensable guide, uh, you know, for uh, for holograms to deal with inferior organic beings, and that was great fun. <laughs> and I did a reading of that. So those were my favorite of my four or five CDs, however many there were. Okay, so next time when you come to Edinburgh, please bring one or two, and I'll be definitely <laughs> queuing up to get one. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> so let's talk about Star Trek, naturally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, in many interviews uh, in the past, you mentioned that your wife was a Trekkie before you even got into it. Um, have you ever imagined that um, the show will play such a significant part in, the li in your life at that time? No, I, I, uh, I grew up... Uh, I, I've confessed this to the fans, so it's not new information. I did not grow up watching Star Trek. I watched Lost in Space, I remember, because I think I had a big 14-year-old crush on, on Angela Cartwright. Um, but I didn't watch Star Trek. I don't know mm -hmm. why. And even more, I guess, uh, an even more humorous uh, fact is that when Star Trek, the original series, came back in syndication in the, in the early 70s, I had just graduated Yale, and I was rooming with two friends from Yale in, a, in an apartment while I was studying acting. And these two guys would come home from whatever their daytime jobs was. One was studying trombone at Juilliard. The other was, I think, about to go to law school, and he was getting a year of personal work experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would sit down at 4 o'clock every afternoon and watch Star Trek reruns, and I would ridicule them mercilessly as I walked through the living room, and they were both glued to the screen. So I, I think it's safe to say that those two guys got the last laugh on me, <laughs> because <laughs> at that time, I would never... I mean, I was a theater. I was studying acting in New York. Uh, acting, to me, was working in the theater. I didn't even think ahead necessarily to mm -hmm. working in television, but I would never have imagined being in a Star Trek or other science fiction series at that stage of my life. And 
uh, when the uh, at the time of the audition, I had not seen a full Star Trek episode. I'd been seen some of the movies. I'd seen mm -hmm. the great uh, Star Trek Four, the whale movie. I'd seen Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan. But I had not seen a complete episode of the original series or a complete episode of any of the uh, of the next generation mm -hmm. or at the time Deep Space Nine had been on two years. So I was pretty ignorant of Star Trek. And in retrospect, I'm glad because had I really wanted the job, uh, it might have psyched me out to to uh, to be a fan. Tim mm -hmm. Russ, to my knowledge, Tim Russ is the only bona fide Star Trek fan in the Voyager cast. Tim mm -hmm. loved the show, wanted the role, and went after it. And thank God he got it because he's just terrific in the show. And uh, really, Tuvok is kind of my, you know, I, I think he's the unsung hero of our cast. I really do. He gives such <laughs> dignity to it. I mean, mm -hmm. I love, I mean, obviously our show would be nothing without Kate Mulgrew. She's our leader. Yeah. Uh, I, think, uh, I think all the actors are great in our cast. But I particularly love Janeway and Seven of Nine. But <laughs> uh, among the male characters, Tuvok is to be the unsung hero of our cast. Great, great dignity mm -hmm. and the core. He's he makes he's the essence of of Star Trek in our cast. I think. Wow. Uh, well, thank you very much for this. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. All right. So we arrived to a um, point in our little podcast where we have a game and that's called Do Your Shat. This is the William Shatner Kirk, Mr. Captain Kirk uh, impression game. <laughs> okay. So um, you can pick anything. You can do Space the Final Frontier if you could do the best William Shatner Captain Kirk impression. <laughs> uh, I'd rather do something else. I'm going to do okay. the first two lines of a song, all right? Okay. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down! <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's about all I can. I'm not much of a Shatner, but, but I, I, that was the beginning of uh, the 14th Psalm, uh, read by <laughs> Captain Kirk. I hope, it, I hope it went over well. That, 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 that was amazing. <laughs> So aside being an actor, um, you're a member of the Planetary Society and um, you're a big science advocate. Um, have you always been um, interested about space and what the Planetary Society does? Um, or is it really branched out from uh, Voyager or Stargate? I would say the latter. I would say that I've always been a science fan. Uh, life sciences were my passion as a young man. Um, but when you're on a Star Trek series, you're put in this extraordinary situation where you get to meet these incredible people in space exploration, in engineering, um, uh, principal investigators of NASA missions. All of these people that, that look to uh, science fiction, perhaps, depending mm -hmm. on their age, they might have been inspired by Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. But of a certain age, most of them were fans of Star Trek, many of them. Um, uh, and because of Star Trek, when I first got on Star Trek, I found myself sitting on a stage. We were celebrating the 30th anniversary of Star Trek in Huntsville, Alabama, and I was on stage with one of my colleagues, Robert Duncan McNeil, and five men who had walked on the moon, including uh, Buzz Aldrin and Alan Shepard and Alan Bean and, and, and uh, uh, Dave Scott. And so here we are on stage with 
five astronauts who, you know, who uh, had the courage and 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 seized the the moment uh, and 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 had stepped on the the moon surface in the uh, obviously the end of the '60s and through mm-hmm. the uh, through the mid '70s and and I realized at that time I can either find this awkward that me a mere actor I'm hanging out with these uh, mm-hmm. legends in space science and exploration, or I can embrace this opportunity and and talk to them, learn what I can from them, and take these the particular access that Star Trek gives me to science fiction fans to help bring the message of real science and real space exploration to the sci-fi fan. To help them realize, if they're not already a, a, a fan of real exploration, to say to them, "Hey, if you're a science fiction fan, you're a science fan, and if you don't know that, have a look at this. Have a look at this. Have a look at this." And that became my early association with the Planetary Society when two of the surviving founders, Carl Sagan, sadly, we lost him way too young. He had passed away a few years before I became involved with this society that he co-founded with Lewis Friedman and Bruce mm-hmm. Murray. So Mr. Friedman and Mr. Murray, who were both colleagues from Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, asked me to be on the advisory council, which I did. I helped, uh, I got the first public service announcement that was ever shot on a Star Trek <laughs> set for some uh, a planetary society um, uh, educational challenge that they were partners mm-hmm. on called the Mars Millennium Project. Um, I was uh, very active with uh, uh, their Red Rover Project where high school and junior high school kids could build their mm-hmm. own Mars Rover. This was right after we had landed our very first uh, rover, the Sojourner, on the Martian service in 1997, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, kids could do an exact analog for that, build their own rover out of Legos send their rover to a competing high school <laughs> and then their rover would explore the unknown martian surface that the other high school had made like a big martian sandbox and meanwhile <laughs> the competing school would send their rover to your school and they would explore your martian surface and they would <laughs> send the the data back via the internet it was a perfect analog for what we you know nasa was really doing at that moment in time and so i like to think that i was helping uh, a new generation of people to get interested in um, in STEM, science, technology, mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, and math, engineering and math. So um, mm-hmm. that was uh, uh, and and then about three four years ago, our present leader Bill Nye, the science guy, who we'd been friends since we met at the 40th anniversary celebration of NASA in um, 1998 in uh in washington dc so bill and i had been friends for a long time and he was now the ceo and asked me to be on the executive board and i have served on that board for about four years now and it's a great it's a great uh, group of people and it's really a great um uh, if, for those of you who don't know i should have started out with this the planetary society is an is a space advocacy group that seeks to empower the regular citizen to have a voice mm-hmm. in space exploration. So you join our membership, you can sign petitions, you will you will have all the up-to-date best bloggers with the best information. We have we, we're quoted all the time 
in national um, uh, newspapers and magazines, we have the best experts on what's happening in space in, in our society. So you'll know everything that's happening and you will, you will be able to sign petitions and influence, um, you know, not only our government, but hopefully other space capable governments in their future choices. It's also this, the Planetary Society uh, built, it, it crowdfunded a spacecraft, which is presently in orbit. It's called LightSail 2, and it is a solar sail spacecraft that was first imagined by Carl Sagan years ago, and we finally fulfilled his dream, raised about $7 million on the internet. So mm -hmm. how, many, how many space organizations have a citizen-funded spacecraft? The answer is none other than the Planetary Society. So check us out at www.planetary.org and consider becoming a member. Wow. Well, before I let you go, because I know we are kind of out of time now, um, being a, a science geek, being um, a singer, and also being a fan of Star Trek, um, and this is what this whole um, podcast is about, to find out what is our warm blanket. I always refer to Star Trek as my warm blanket because that comforts me when I need it, need it the most. And I wonder you now being the fan of the show and obviously playing in it, um, what is your warm blanket when you think about Star Trek? Well, um, well, obviously I see it from the, both the inside and the outside. <laughs> I have learned uh, really from listening to fans and meeting fans all over the world, I've learned how important Star Trek is to them um, how uh, uh, as as you sort of indicated by calling it a warm blanket what a comfort it's been to them especially in during periods of particular challenge in their life I, I can't tell you how many fans have said thank you Star Trek helped save my life during a time when I was either very depressed or I was uh, suffering from addiction or I had just I just lost a family member or I had cancer for the first time there are just so many examples of people who credit the show that they like watching and the stories that it tells and the characters that it that it portrays has given them inspiration and comfort and hope at a dark time in their lives and that is that is really i think the best reward you could get as an actor to feel that in some small way you you've made the life better for people who enjoyed watching your work um, and you're part of something bigger than yourself so that i would say that from the inside from being an actor that is my warm blanket of star trek is that it has such a devoted uh, fan base and that they care about uh, the work and they seem to care about me and my career and my life just because I was part of something that is meaningful to them and continues to mean and and that Star Trek garners new fans all the time I meet all always at events people that are that were born after Voyager finished its run you know Voyager mm -hmm. finished its its primetime run in the very beginning of 2001 and I'll meet fans that are 14 16 18 years old who who have just watch the whole binge watch the whole series <laughs> and to them it's all brand new and they're very excited to meet me and my cast mates so that's a great feeling that the work lives on and that people constantly revisit it and 
and uh, and and it's also nice to have a signature role as an actor. I've played many, many different characters. I've been on another science fiction franchise, as you said, uh, Stargate. Stargate. And mm -hmm. I, I love that experience. I wish it went on longer. <laughs> I, I love the transformation of my character from basically a, a villain, a, a, you know, sort of a... A man in a, a suit. A, you know, a man in a suit, you know, who came in to evaluate other people's leadership and was always looking for the fall guy or the person who screwed up so that their head would roll <laughs> yes. uh, and then and then assumed the mantle of leadership himself after being the armchair quarterback that he was mm -hmm. and, um, those producers you know um, uh, Brad Wright Robert Cooper and especially Joe Malazzi and Paul Muley were very kind uh, to me as a as a person they they loved uh, what I brought to the character, and they were the they were the easiest people uh, to work for because they were just so enthusiastic to have you aboard. So that was a uh, Stargate was a great experience, and my only regret is that I didn't get to play that character longer. Um, but I've been very blessed to uh, to be part of two great science fiction franchises, and of course the Doctor, because I did so much of it, is my is pretty much my signature role um, as an actor, and and what's nice about that is he started, you know, as as basically a blank slate, and I got to grow before the audience's eyes over the course of seven years into a pretty fully rounded human <laughs> being like uh, artificial intelligence. So he had a great journey, and uh, and I never would have anticipated it when I got the role. I didn't see it where it was going to go. I didn't get it at first, but as it became clear to me that I had lucked into, and not only a well-loved franchise, but I'd lucked into the really the plum role for a man on in our cast, I am very grateful for that to this day, and uh, surprised and delighted by a turn in my career I could never have anticipated. Now that's such a such a beautiful note to I think end this conversation. And I know you um, you have a busy schedule, and I'm I'm honestly I'm really glad that and honored that you um, that you spared your precious time with me, and my, with my audience as well. Thank you very much again, Mr. Picardo. Um, we'll hope to see you soon in in one of the convention or or out there. And we, everyone everyone who's listening, look out for Alfonso. <laughs> <laughs> look out for Alfonso and also look out for a little song parody that will be coming your way that won't be about Star Trek specifically, but maybe about a Star Trek character you know and love, uh, obliquely, shall we say. And, uh, and um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope to be back in Scotland soon. I dearly wish that I'm performing at the Edinburgh Festival again. Oh, yeah, in the French when, Festival. And, yeah, I know this is obviously, of course, the first year where there will be no French Festival since it was since its inception, yes. and all for good reason. But um, I pray for a time when we can all be together again, that we have a vaccine, and this is all a distant memory. And <laughs> and I pray for anyone who's lost a loved one, a, a family member, a, a friend, or even a friend of a friend. Um, to this terrible virus, I, my um, my condolences to you, and I just hope that this very stressful and difficult time will be behind us individually and all of our countries very soon. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, again, thank you very much for uh, for being in the show, sir. And for my audience, thank you very much for listening to another Warm Blanket, the podcast where we are in a quest to find out what is our Warm Blanket about. Live long and prosper. And that was it for this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. And rest assured, new episodes will be coming out every week where we sit down with a Trekkie to find out what makes us feel good about Star Trek and to discover what is our Warm Blanket made of. If you really enjoy listening to this podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It would really mean a lot to me. To find out more about this audio adventure, please visit trekoprize.com forward slash podcast where you can also listen to the previous episodes. Thank you again for listening to yet another episode of the Warm Blanket Podcast and I'll see you in the next episode. Live long and prosper. <laughs>